we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Hi, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Whether you're watching a video or listening to a podcast version, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. Links to videos or MP3 files can be found at MiamiGhostChronicles.com. You can also find information about my talk show appearances and any new book projects at MarlenePardo.com. Or go to Amazon and look up my author profile as Marlene Pardo Pelliser. I narrate several podcast series that can be found on major podcast platforms and also listen to via Alexa, Sonos, and other home systems. Look for Supernatural Storytime for scary storytelling, Nightshade Diary for classic horror and adventure stories, and of course, Stories of the Supernatural for interviews with different guests as we talk about the mysteries of the unexplained. If you want to get noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy theories, and just about anything that is plain weird, you can visit Stranger Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. The Legends of Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum Formerly known as the Western State Hospital, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum was built on 666 acres and was meant to serve as a sanctuary for the mentally ill when it opened in 1864. A 200-foot tall clock tower dominated the central administration area completed in 1871. Most of the early work was done by prison labor. All the final stonework was completed by skilled stonemasons brought in from Europe. The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum began taking residence in 1861 long before it was completed, and patients were continually added until the structure was completed some 20 years later. It was still in operation as an asylum in 1994 when it was closed. It was reopened in 2007 to host historic and paranormal tours. A notable fire that was started by a patient in 1935 destroyed six male wards and caused one of the cupolas to fall through the roof. The damaged areas were reconstructed. However, the rest of the original hospital was reported to have poor sanitation, insufficient lighting, furniture, and heating in comparison. A 1938 report by a survey committee organized by a group of North American medical organizations found that the hospital housed epileptics, 
alcoholics, drug addicts, and non-educatable mental defectives among its population. A series of reports by the Charleston Gazette in 1949 found poor sanitation and insufficient furniture, lighting, and heating in much of the complex. The asylum was six times over capacity. The patients inside were running wild and orderlies outnumbered struggled to regain control. Western State Hospital found itself to be the home for the West Virginia Lobotomy Project in the early 1950s. This was an effort by the state of West Virginia and Walter Freeman to use lobotomy to reduce the number of patients in asylums because there was severe overcrowding. In the course of his lifetime, Freeman performed some 4,000 lobotomies, leaving sometimes perfectly healthy patients with lasting physical and cognitive damage. His ice pick method, which involved slipping a thin pointed rod like an ice pick into the patient's eye socket and using a hammer to force it to sever the connective tissue in the brain's prefrontal cortex, resulted in a number of deaths. Overcrowding was in part due to the incredible variety of reasons people were admitted. While plenty of people suffered from mental illness, not everyone arrived for those reasons. Surprising notes found in patient records, some were medical such as asthma, rabies, and tuberculosis. Others were stranger still, wives who were insubordinate to their husbands, indigestion, doubting's once ancestry, political and religious excitement, and being kicked in the head by a horse were also on the list. A man could admit his wife for any reason, and if he decided to never bring her home, if, say, he started a new relationship, she remained as a ward of the state. Children often accompanied their mothers, and some children were born within the hospital's walls and were raised there. Other children were dropped off in front of the hospital as orphans. Originally built to house only 250 patients, by the 1950s, its population had increased to approximately 2,400 patients in what was described as very poor conditions. Prior to the 18th century, when persons displaying aberrant behavior could be brought to an asylum like Trans-Allegheny, they were thought to be possessed, and treatment of these persons was barbaric, especially if they had no family or friends to take responsibility for them. Many ended up in prison, and even when they had families, they were mostly hidden away without any attempt to cure them or help them assimilate back into society since insanity was considered incurable. The first floor has a wing that is called the Civil War Wing, which is the oldest part of the hospital and is considered one of the most haunted, as is the fourth floor, even though the entire facility is considered haunted. Many treatments that are not considered barbaric were used such as electroshock therapy, lobotomies, and ice water baths, among others. Not only did patients die of natural causes, many committed suicide or killed other patients or nurses. Many female workers were raped. In one case, a nurse mysteriously went missing while on duty in the asylum. Her rotting body was found two months later at the bottom of a stairwell in an obscure corner of the building. Walking through the empty hallways and rooms, 
where peeling paint and barred windows encourage the belief that proof of residual haunting such as footsteps and the sound of gurney wheels are self-evident. In a room towards the back of one wing, an inmate was murdered by two others. When an attempt to hang him failed, the man placed his head under bed frame and jumped on it until the bed frame touched the floor. Other patients were also murdered by their peers, aggravated by situations where mental illness overcrowding and poor care became a lethal combination. Asylum staff were empowered to send patients to isolation if the patients were uncontrollable, and even if they weren't, and some patients were kept in solitary confinement for days or even weeks at a time. Isolation was so detestable that one inmate, in particular a former boxer, who suffered from injuries that rendered him emotionless and occasionally violent, attempted to beat down the metal door that closed behind him when he was placed in a solitary cell. He ripped one door off its hinges, which left visible dents in the other door. When the door was open, he handed the door he destroyed to the nurse and calmly returned to his room. While some people eventually left the asylum under their own power, many died there. The staff notified next of kin when a patient passed away, and in many cases, families did not return to identify or take the bodies for burial. Patients who were not claimed by their families were assigned a number, buried in the cemetery, and issued a simple gravestone, reflecting only their identification number. Over time, many of the gravestones were removed and even repurposed. Today, there's virtually no way to identify the bodies buried at the asylum. Patients are always buried. They were never cremated. The following are some of the ghosts of Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. First one is William Cook, unknown when he was born, but he died in 1891. William Billy Cook was a resident on Ward 5 and Ward 3. Shortly after being committed for one year, he took his own life on August 23, 1891. He died of shock after turning the hot water on in the bathtub and jumping into it and scalding many parts of his body. He was described as intensely demented. His ghost has been communicating via flashlight sessions, mostly on the second floor, which is Ward 5, and the third floor, Ward 3 centering around the shower room. He also produces loud bangs, rolling and dragging noises in the sound of footsteps through water. Another one is Jesse Albright. Jesse Albright died on July 14, 1949, after living at Tala or Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum for over seven years. He died from organic illness in his body and his extended family claimed his body and he was buried on the grounds in the third cemetery. Jesse's ghost is reported as a talker who whispers in guests' ears and is known to answer to his name. He also communicates via flashlight in a K2 meter. He also drains batteries. Another ghost is Jacob Ayers, who was released from the asylum in 1910. Jacob was born and grew up in West Virginia, however, after his release from Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, nothing else was heard from him again. In life, he was known to be an alcoholic 
who contributed to his illness while he was a resident of the asylum it is believed he slept in one of the oldest wards on the southern end of the facility as a ghost he interacts with visitors using a flashlight a k2 meter and he is known to follow them around at times he is cooperative however other times he growls at visitors and even though he probably has been walking the hallways of the asylum for many years he was first documented in 2008 by Jason and Grant from Ghost Hunters. Another ghost is Jane Harvey, born 1865 and died in 1884. Jane died by her own hand on November 6, 1884. It is unknown how long she was actually at the asylum. She lived on the second floor on Ward B. At this location, many visitors have had contact with an entity named Jane. Visitors have complained of pressure on their chest and a strangling sensation. Jane's presence is presaged by a bitter chill in the air and spikes in the K2 meter. She has also been recorded on EVPs. Another one is Lawrence Larry Carroll. Larry was admitted on multiple occasions to Tallahassee Lunatic Asylum, the last time being in 1941. He only had an 8th grade education and suffered greatly from mental illness in which he exhibited violent behavior towards others. Larry was apprehended in connection to the murder of a local 15-year-old boy who was killed by Larry on his way back from church to his grandmother's home and whose body was found in a cave. He was beaten and then buried alive by Larry. Communication with Larry is usually on the 4th floor and he keeps company with another ghost named Frank. Contact with Larry has an unfriendly tone as objects have been thrown at visitors. These are just but a few of the ghosts at the asylum. There's probably many more. Some that never give out their name or really understand that they are not among the living anymore. But here are following ghostly and spooky stories having to do with asylums just like Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Story number one. I was born and raised in Wisconsin. Wisconsin in general is known for our cheese, our cows, and our love of beer. And of course, our excess of mental institutions and serial killers. Ed Gein and Jeffrey Dahmer hail from my home state. In case you've been living under a rock, they are two of the most infamous serial killers in America. I don't know if it's the cold climate or what, but we seem to breed quite a bit of crazy up here. In my hometown, we have this old abandoned asylum by the highway. It used to house the criminally insane, at least according to local folklore. This is where Milk White legend came from. Milk White was supposedly a patient at the asylum. He was born there, his mother being one of the inmates. No one knew what to do with him, so he just crawled around the asylum, eating scraps. He had no other kids to play with. He was an albino, and any form of light would horribly burn his skin. So he was never awake when there was daylight. Milk White grew up learning madness from the other inmates, desperate for human companionship. Something about that madness turned him from a human into a demon. The story is that one day he found a way to get in and out of the asylum. He got it into his head 
that he could go find friends from the city. He peered into the windows of every house to see if anyone was awake. If he found a child awake, he would steal them away. Of course, children are loud, so instead of taking them alive, he would use his huge teeth to crush their necks. He would prop up the corpses of the children in the asylum basement, pretending to have an entire room of friends. He would sing them nursery rhymes in the dead of night. The asylum was shut down a long time ago. Milk White had nowhere to go. So they say he still lives in the abandoned building, going out at night and bringing back the bodies of any kid still awake after dark. This is all regarded as an urban legend, but I remember that story back from when I was a kid. There was an odd little rhyme that we used to sing on the playground. It went, Hush now, sleep tight, or else beware of Milk White. He doesn't fuss, he doesn't fight. He'll kill you dead with just one bite. Parents would use this tale to scare the children into going to sleep. It worked well, or at least it did for me. I fully believed the myth up until middle school. I remember that's when a new kid moved to town. He was from New York City, so we all thought he had to be way cooler than any of us. His name was Timmy. He had a New York accent and everything. He wore chucks and had a leather jacket. He wore it all year round, even in the middle of winter. He was never quiet about how much he hated the town. My friend Hans and I made an uneasy friendship with him. Hans was 17, but dumb enough to be held back to middle school. He was huge compared to us. We'd been friends for a while. I actually grew up with his brother, Peter. Peter disappeared on a camping trip when we were seven. After that, I started becoming closer with Hans. We'd hang out, play video games, and just do nothing. He wasn't very smart, but he was a good guy. I liked being his friend. I was a pretty typical 12-year-old, scrawny, trying to appear cooler than I was. I wasn't particularly special, but I guess I was a good kid. Timmy was the one with all the confidence. He could talk to girls and get himself out of trouble easily. He also thought he knew everything. It was Timmy's idea to scope out the asylum. I think he was bored of the snow and wanted to do something exciting. That's when I told him about Milk White. What a crock of shit, he responded. That's a baby story. You don't really believe that? I looked at Hans. We shook his head stupidly. Hans was pretty happy to have friends. So he would have done anything for Timmy or me. I was scared, but I shook my head too. Timmy decided we would go to the asylum that night. He joked about Milk White calling a pathetic excuse for a ghost story. Hans and I were horrified that he would mock the creature that haunted our childhoods, but we tried to act calm about it. We snuck out around midnight and met up at the overpass. I was bundled in about seven layers of wool Timmy, like always, just wore his leather jacket. He had the way as we trudged through the snow towards the abandoned building. It must have been impressive once, but now it just looked decayed. While we were walking around, Hans grabbed my arm and pointed to the ground. A set of footprints were in the snow. The prints were large, like that of a grown man, but there were toe marks, as if the person was barefoot. I debated showing them to Timmy, but I knew he would just laugh at me. I shrugged at Hans, 
Come on. We got to the main entrance to the asylum just as fresh falling of snow began to accumulate. Timmy tried to open the door, but it was shut firmly. He kicked out, but no use. Hans was shivering. Looks like we can't get in. Timmy laughed at him. You wuss. We haven't even tried yet. Timmy had a terrible mouth on him. Hans and I were good Midwestern boys. We never swore, but Timmy was very different than us. He moved around to a boarded-up window. It was low enough that he could use his hands to pry under the boards. With a violent jerk, he pulled the plank away. We could see that there was no glass inside. Timmy made a la aha sound and fought the other board loose. You coming, pansies? He pulled himself up to the window and slipped inside. Hans and I looked at each other nervously. If we went in, we'd be confronting the very thing we had feared since kindergarten. If we didn't, we'd lose our friendship with Timmy and probably any shred of reputation. I took a deep breath of cold air and hoisted myself through the window. I landed in a pile of broken boards. Apparently, other people had tried to get in as well because there were planks everywhere. Timmy was rubbing his leg. I think I cut myself. His jeans had a long gash in them. I stood up and dusted myself off. Hans flew through the window with a heavy thump. He shrieked and held up his hand. A nail was embedded into his palm. Timmy went over to him and yanked the thing out. Tears poured down Hans' cheeks. Timmy rolled his eyes. You're a big baby, aren't you? Scared of a ghost and a little blood? He turned his back on us and started walking towards the hall. We had thought I had to bring flashlights, but they weren't much help. The halls were pitch black. We walked along the wall, keeping a hand steady to balance. We heard a squeak from behind us, and I almost jumped out of my skin. Timmy just laughed. Scared of mice now, too queer? The entire time we explored the asylum, I barely breathed. It wasn't just the darkness, it was the unknown. And we found empty wheelchairs and creepy-looking metal cots. Our flashlights scanned the blackness, but nothing moved. Once we had been exploring for an hour or so, and I felt my heart beat slow. Timmy was obviously right. Milk White was just a baby story to scare kids. It was Hans who found the door to the basement. He pointed at it with his flashlight. Timmy tried the handle, but it was stuck. He tried kicking down the door, but he just hurt his ankle. I stood silently. Timmy shone his light into Hans' face. You big guy, kick the door. I want to see what's down there. Hans started trembling and shook his head. No. Timmy pushed him. Come on, you big idiot. Do something useful. For God's sake. Hans looked down, embarrassed. I stepped towards him. Maybe we should go. Timmy sneered. Or maybe you should. We all stopped because of what we heard. It was footsteps. It sounded like they were coming up the stairs from the basement door. I stared open-mouthed at Timmy, who was frozen in place. The footsteps were loud. They sounded like skin slapping on metal. Turn off your lights now, Timmy hissed. We all shut up our flashlights and huddled against the wall. Hans was shaking really bad, and I could smell that he had peed himself. Timmy was swearing under his breath. The footsteps kept going until they were almost right next to us. Then there was a the sound of a doorknob creaking. 
It was completely dark, so we couldn't see a thing. All we could do was listen as the door slid open. That's when we heard the voice. It was the deep voice of a man, but sung unreasonably high. It sang, whispered, Hush now, sleep tight. Timmy was rocking back and forth. I could feel the fear emanating from him. He had his jaw clenched and his teeth made a horrible crunch. The voice kept saying, Beware, beware of milk white. I must have trembled because my thumb knocked the on button of my flashlight. In a single second, it illuminated the hallway and we could see the source of the voice. All of us gasped at once. It stood barely two feet away. It might have been a man once, but now had the posture of a scorpion. It was naked, standing with its feet spread apart like an insect. Its head reared back like it could spit venom. The nails on its feet and hands were so overgrown they curled back into its skin. The teeth jetted from its mouth. They hung down as if it were too heavy for it to list its head properly. Its skin, it wasn't white. Not like the rhyme said it was stained red. It took a step towards us and whispered, Kill you dead with just one bite. And that's when Hans bashed my head in with his flashlight. I woke up on the floor of the asylum. Daylight had only just creeped into the sky. My head was pounding. I struggled to stand, but I must have gotten frostbite in the night. My fingers and toes were completely numb. I looked around and saw Timmy passed out near me. He had a giant bruise on his temple. I tried to wake him, but he wouldn't stir. I don't know how I did it, but I managed to stand up and drag Timmy out of the window. I wasn't strong enough to sling him over my shoulder, so I had to drag him through the snow. He made soft pain noises, but didn't wake up. I made it to the tavern by the highway. They weren't open, but I pounded on the door until my knuckles blood, screaming for help. The owner finally came to see what the noise was and let us in. He was visibly shaken by our appearance. He called the police and our parents. Soon I was wrapped in blankets and slowly beginning to feel warm again. Timmy eventually woke up in the hospital with minor memory loss. I told the police my story and they searched the entire asylum. They didn't find anything. No evidence of any foul play except the blood Timmy had lost. No one knew where Hans was. His parents were devastated. Now they had lost two sons. Timmy had no memory of the night's events. At least that's what he said. My parents made me see a psychologist who told me I created the whole thing in my mind. She said Hans must have done something terrible to Timmy and I, and I just blocked it out. After all, Hans was so much older and bigger than us, and then he left town so suddenly. The psych implied it was sexual abuse. She said I made up the image of Milk White because I knew that from my childhood it was easier than facing the truth. I went to bed early before dark every night until I went away for college. I never went back to my hometown. My parents hound me to visit, but I refused to return. They think it's because of what Hans did to me, but I know what I saw. And I know that Hans only hurt me to knock me out. He knew that Milk White can't get you if you're asleep.
Story number two. For a number of years, I was a camp counselor at an overnight camp in the Muscogas. I loved it more than any job I've ever had, despite the non-existent pay, annoying campers, long days and short nights, crappy food, etc. For one, I got to tell as many scary stories as I could sputter out. There was nothing better than hanging around a dying campfire with a bunch of junior high kids who were demanding the scariest, most blood-curdling tales I knew. And I told them all. The babysitter and the eerie clown statue, the driver and the creepy gas attendant, the woman and her licking dog. I saved my best stories for the overnight trips we made in Algonquin Park. For non-Canadians, it's a massive park in the middle of Ontario, spanning nearly 8,000 square kilometers. One days would be spent canoeing on pristine lakes, and nights would be spent around the fire, singing and making s'mores and being as rowdy as the only people within miles could be. Once the kids had quieted down, I told them stories of a stalker in the woods with a face so horrifying it paralyzed all of its victims in fear, or the group of campers who decided to spend the night across the lake from an abandoned, or was it, insane asylum. On this particular night, I'd finished up the tales, once again insisting that they were entirely true, and sent the campers to their tents. It had been an exhausting day, and none of the six kids were in any mood to stay up later. My fellow counselors had also decided to pack it in, leaving just me on a fallen log next to the dying fire. I took a deep breath of the cool, fresh, pine-scented air and looked out at the lake. The partial moon reflected off the glassy water, and on the other side I could see towering cliffs going up several hundred feet. I considered whether we could canoe over, climb up a few dozen feet, and do some cliff jumping. I grinned. The camp director would have my head if we did that, if he found out. Movement at the very top of the cliffs caught my eye. There was a small light bobbing along the peak. At first I thought it was a star, but it was larger and gave off a golden glow. It slowly moved back and forth in a small arc. As I sat up and watched it, another appeared next to it, bobbing along the top of the cliff, then another, and another, and a few more. My stomach dropped into my feet. I grabbed my bag and pulled my digital camera out then focused it on the little glowing orbs and used the zoom function. I counted them, and then I counted again. Aw, oh, shit. In a flash, I was up and running to the tents. Hey, guys, wake up. We gotta go. There was movement in the tents, and then I had seven confused heads looking out at me. My co-counselor were a mixture of concern and pure anger. I hate to do this, I continued, but the clouds are looking really threatening. There's a big rainstorm coming in. If we get caught in it, it's going to ruin our trip. Seriously? Laura, my co-counselor, asked. We're in the middle of the woods. Where would we go? I pulled the map and a flashlight out of my bag. There's a ranger station a few kilometers south of us. I traced the path with my finger. Thank God. We can make it there in a few hours. The camper's grown. Can't we just go in the morning? No, I shouted, my voice echoing across the lake. I lowered it. Come on, let's get packed up and go. I'll tell you a story along the way. I smiled, though I could feel my lips quivering. It's my best one.
that seemed to get them going. And within 10 minutes, the tents were packed up and we'd begun our trek into the deep woods with small flashlights, our only guide. I was confident we were moving at a steady pace. I allowed myself to relax and began to tell my favorite campfire story. Centuries before the European settlers made their way into the country, it was inhabited by the First Nations people. They had made the trip from across western Canada, following the migration patterns of large animals such as buffalo and bison. Eventually, they reached Ontario, at which point they split off into smaller groups of travelers, each searching for a section of land to call their own. Legend has it that one group, consisting of about 20 men, women, and children, had ventured through this very area in search of a place to call home. There wasn't even the end of October. The weather had made a turn for the worse. And as the group journeyed around the lake, a fierce blizzard hit. Within an hour, the group had found themselves in blinding snow and below zero temperatures. The clothes they had on were made for the fall, not this sort of weather and there weren't any Canada goose jackets around back then. But they pressed on. They didn't have any other choice. Night was falling as they reached the cliff bluff, which towered over a cold, choppy lake. There was no stopping for this group. They'd die if they didn't make it past the cliffs. But with darkness setting in and the snow falling even harder, visibility was almost non-existent. So one of the elders had an idea. Using the little kerosene they had left, he lit a lantern for each of the travelers and had them carry it in front of them, not so that they could see the cliffs, but so they could see who was in front of them, allowing them to all follow each other across the narrow bluffs. With the strongest of the men leading the way, the group began to cross the cliffs. The freezing wet snow soaked every bone in their body. The harsh wind chilled any exposed skin and threatened to push them right off the rock. Their path was no more than a few feet wide. It would have been slippery to even the best of hiking boots, let alone hand-fashioned moccasins. Slowly, painstakingly slowly, they made their way up the cliffs, praying that whatever lay on the other side could shelter them from the intensifying storm. They were about halfway up, hundreds of feet above the lake, though it was well out of their vision. In fact, all they could see in this blinding storm was the lantern in front of them, acting as a beacon to guide their steps. If the light moved up, they moved up. If it went down, they moved down. Each of the travelers was almost in a trance, carrying about nothing but the glowing orb a few feet away. For the leader, though, there was no such luxury. He moved forward blindly, feeling along the cliff with his free arm, the skin was numb so he could barely feel anything. As the path wound back again, he made a misstep and lost his footing just as a gust of wind blasted his back. He desperately grasped for the hold, but his frozen fingers couldn't get anything. With a terrified scream, he slipped off the cliffs and fell into the icy black lake. The rest of the party didn't see him fall, of course. All they saw was his glowing orb dropping away from the bluff and disappearing in the darkness. There was no time to mourn. They continued on, but the storm was worsening. After another minute, one of the children, his body unable to withstand the cold, dropped away, his lantern glowing until the choppy waters put it out. Another, having seen this, lost his balance and fell. 
This pattern went on until there were just five people left, fumbling along in the darkness, following the light in front. As hard as they tried, the cliffs were unforgiving. The remaining men fell down to four, then three and two, and then there was just one left, who legend says cursed the earth as his legs slipped and he plunged hundreds of feet down, his lantern the last one to be extinguished. Of the 20 members who tried to overcome the cliffs I finished, not one of them survived. They say that sometimes, when the conditions are right, you can see the orbs along the cliffs, symbols of the lost travelers who will never find their homes. As the story ended, leaving the campers in an eerie silence, I saw lights up ahead. A wave of relief poured over me. We picked up the pace and found the ranger station, bursting with activity, with a half dozen people running around, loading up trucks and shouting into radios. The wind was beginning to really pick up and I heard thunder in the distance. Hey, you kids! A large, burly man with a full beard and mustache ran up to us. Get in the trucks. We don't have much time. Laura and I led the kids to one of the pickup trucks. What's going on? I asked the man. Didn't you hear? Another gust of wind. Huge storm systems are heading right for us. Already been tornadoes touched down. We're getting everyone out of here. Let's go. We all climbed into the truck's bed. I collapsed down, feeling like I'd just been punched in the gut. The ranger climbed into the front, and we took off down a makeshift road. My head was spinning. It wasn't possible. How? Laura slid next to me, keeping her voice low. How did you know we had to go out of there? I looked over at her. My face felt empty of any blood. I saw the lights. What? No, no. She gasped and caught herself. How many? I took a deep breath. Eight. She looked around at all the campers, who were now lying against each other, asleep despite the bumpy road. That's all of us, my God. I nodded and leaned against her. Laura had heard the traveler's story before, and she knew that left out a key bit of information. The lights were real, but they were never random. If they were shining, bobbing back and forth, swinging in a small arc, it was because they had a message, a warning. One light would shine for each person who was about to die. Story number three. I was taken in last year for suspicion of murdering my wife and her mother. During my court trial, my lawyer pleaded insanity. The alternative was 10, but I didn't really have a say in the matter. The judge granted it and I was on my way. I arrived on November 17th. I was driven to this asylum and placed in a small isolated room with a small window. That was the only light I received for weeks. I longed for release, wishing to be let free. After weeks, the guards noticed I was one of the more obedient inmates. I was inmate number 216 and soon became respected among the guards with my overflowing knowledge. I read my days away in the small but resourceful library, a privilege I earned over time, and was accompanied by a guard who I would often engage in small talk. I was almost happy. For a man in an asylum, everything was all right. Until the construction began across the street. I noticed it one morning as I awoke and peered out my cubby-like window. 
I saw a man with a crew drilling into the ground with their jackhammers. I was intrigued when I first encountered the site with my eyes, and my mind constantly wondered what they could be building. That day, I skipped my reading session and simply watched the men drill all day. I slept with a smile on my face, dreaming of the possibilities. They constantly drilled day in and day out until the sun was almost sickening. I prayed for them to stop, but they never did. 76 days. 76 days they drilled. I remembered asking myself, how deep could they possibly need their hole to be? 76 days? I didn't attend my reading sessions. Guards came to check in on me and feed me. Guards which I lashed out upon. I began talking to myself, mimicking the drilling sounds, sometimes even in my sleep. I was soon feared among guards, and they checked on me less and less until they stopped altogether. I was nearly starved to death until my old reading acquaintance stopped by. I could tell he feared me as he quickly dropped the food and was about to scurry away until I muttered two words, thank you. It was a whisper, but he heard me and smiled, exiting casually. The next few weeks were different. I was fed and began to read once more. I engaged the guard in small talk once again, and we shared laughs. Things were looking better, and on the date of November 24th, I was released after I was proven sane. I had to encounter a variety of tests and undergo therapy before I could be released. The construction was completed and resulted in a small urgent care center. I'm now a respectful citizen and I'm working on a job. I have truly turned my life around. Now this man's story really inspired me and we talked for a little while even after the interview ended. Through our talk, we came across a question that made me uncomfortable and scared. What would you consider your greatest achievement while in the asylum? He answered without a stutter and stared into my eyes. He almost had a slight smile on his face. Convincing the guards, I was a sane man. With MailChimp, you get more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. With things like data-driven recommendations and powerful automation tools. Get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row. Proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks.